Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession this morning is from 1 Samuel 15, verse 22. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. King Saul had been commanded commanded to utterly destroy all the Amalekites, including their women, children, and livestock. But instead, he preserved the Amalekite king, and he commanded his men to take the best of the sheep and oxen. When called by Samuel to account for this action, Saul declared that he did it for the purpose of offering sacrifices to God. Samuel promptly responded with the assurance that sacrifices were no excuse for a direct act of rebellion. He tells Saul that obedience is better in God's sight than sacrifices, which is also to say that obedience is better than ritual, or obedience to God is better than religion. The statement before us this morning, to obey is better than sacrifice, is worthy to be printed in letters of gold and hung up before our eyes, the eyes of our adulterous hearts, which, also, which are very fond of the fineries of religion, but often neglectful of the law of God. In here we have our high liturgy, our reformed doctrines, our family integrated worship, our weekly observance of communion, and praise the Lord. But what about out there? Where is our obedience? What about Monday through Saturday? Are we obeying God and utterly destroying sin? Or are we keeping back for ourselves the spoils of the world, and all the while pointing to our religion, our right doctrine, as evidence of our devotion to Christ? Let us recall whom Jesus said were his brothers and sisters and mother, whoever does the will of God. Who did Jesus say were his disciples? Those who abide in his word. How did Jesus say we should show our love for him? By keeping his commands. All the pretensions we make of attachment to Christ, all the devout actions we may perform, do not justify our disobedience. To obey, even in the slightest and smallest thing, is better than sacrifice, however lovely or theologically correct it may be. Let it always be in our remembrance that keeping to the path of our Savior's commands is better than any outward form of religion. Abiding in Christ, obeying his commands, is what makes us Christians, not our denomination. Abiding in Christ, obeying his commands, is what gives us true life, not our rituals. Abiding in Christ, obeying his commands, is what delights God, not our right doctrine. God's word reminds us of our need for confession. If you're willing and able, please kneel with me. It's my pleasure to talk to you this morning about Isaiah 53. It's something that 
a lot of us have, have heard, we've recited it, we've gone through it, we've talked about it. It talks about the suffering servant and so forth. And I'm going to pick on one particular aspect of that. Um, it's, it's a wonderful center point, especially as you start looking towards uh, Good Friday and Easter and you start heading that direction to start to, to look at all the things that Christ was able was was fulfilling at that time and fulfilled in the words of Isaiah as well. We're going to take a look at a few things here. There's so much that you could spend an entire year going through Isaiah 53, but I'm just going to take a few minutes and talk about Isaiah 53 verses 8 through 9. But before we get started, I'd like to pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would be here with us today, that your Holy Spirit would descend upon us like a dove, and that would be, you would be with us as you are always with us, so that you would be here and give us insight into your words, and that this wouldn't be about anything that I'm speaking or anything that, it, that people are hearing, but what is transcending into our hearts from you, and what, are, what is a word that you want to speak to us today, Lord? Lord, I pray that if I say anything amiss, that it would come to nothing, and that if I miss anything, that it would be... Uh, clear to the minds and hearts of everybody here, nevertheless. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Isaiah 53. Isaiah is an interesting book. It has lots of different aspects. I'm just going to kind of talk a little bit about Isaiah 53. One of the things that's phenomenal about Isaiah 53 is that it was written far before Jesus was here, and yet afterwards, and you see the life that Jesus lived, you look back and you kind of have forget the colloquialism, the duh effect. You look at that and you're like, wow, that is Jesus. There's no question about it. Such that if you look at something like that, it's difficult for us to understand how a, a, a Jew or how anybody can look at that and not see Jesus' life in it. It's so clear. Now we see Jesus fulfilling things all through the New Testament, fulfilling Old Testament scripture as it was written, as it was said, all those sorts of things. But Isaiah 53 somehow is a special place in that whole picture, especially going into Easter. Uh, Isaiah 53 speaks of this suffering servant, this, this servant that atones for the sins of God's people. And uh, specifically talks about his ministry. And then in the area we're looking at, actually the means of this atonement, how that goes about happening. So this is hundreds of years before Bethlehem, and yet it's so clear that Jesus fulfills this. Uh, he's not just the Lord, but also a suffering servant. Not just unappreciated, but also rejected and led to slaughter. Not just brokenhearted, but physically broken and crushed as well. Uh, listen to the word of the Lord as I read it here. Isaiah 53, verses 8 through 9. I'll give you a second here. I hear somebody turning there. So, Isaiah 53, verses 8 through 9. Actually, I'm going to read 7 through 9. I'm going to mostly focus on 8 and 9, but... Verses 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Verse 8. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. Verse 9. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit. In his mouth. Even as we read through this, you can see how that was fulfilled in Jesus, but at the same time, it's hard to see almost ahead of time. How can he be assigned a grave with the wicked and yet be 
buried with the rich, yet we understand how that is. It's fun. We're going to spend a little time just digging in here uh, to talk a little bit more about this. This passage, by the way, is the same one that we get over in Acts verse, uh, uh, chapter 8, where the Ethiopian eunuch is reading, and Philip is, comes across him. He's reading this, and he says, how am I supposed to understand this unless somebody can explain it to him? Philip says, let me ex- explain. That's Jesus. And it's so clear. And so I think that's that same picture of like, how can I understand this? And then once the Holy Spirit is able to explain it to us, it's so clear to us because we have the Holy Spirit in us. So going back to the, the time around Jesus' Jesus' time here, it had been a rough three years here for the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Here Jesus comes onto this scene, and they have not been able to figure out how to stop him. They thought at first it would kind of go away. They have a lot of internal discussions. They can't figure this out. Uh, and Basically, they have this big problem. They don't understand even how Jesus takes this, forgive the the phrase, a bunch of losers from their perspective. A bunch of people, he doesn't take the best and the brightest from their point of view. He takes a bunch of of fishermen and a a few, a tax collector here, a few other. He takes these and somehow this is getting lift. This this movement of Jesus's is getting lift. And from their perspective, they're like, we need to stop this. We're told here, by the way, that those who would take his life would literally take everything else as well. They don't want to just stop Jesus in his tracks. They want to get rid of him. They want to get rid of any followers he has. They want to get rid of his name. They want to shame him. They want to, get, they want to kill him. They want to take away all his posterity, all that would carry on his cause and that would take his name. And he want, they want him to be wiped from the earth. You can see that evidence in the fact that once Jesus is, from their perspective, gone, we know raised again. Once Jesus is gone, they still have these pesky disciples, these apostles wandering around proclaiming things in Jesus' name. And they constantly are trying to stop that. They want to stop all of this. Now, one thing that you should know about those days, and the title of Into a Nameless Grave, the reason why I picked that one is in those days, thieves may have robbed tombs, but they didn't lay in them. Uh, criminals were not given a dignified death nor a dignified burial. It was, more, it was most common in those days to bury them in what you call mass unmarked graves. Really only the rich had the blessing and the uh, luxury of posterity and indicators of worth and indicators of loved ones. So they want to be able to get rid of Jesus and they want him to convict him as a, as a criminal and then he would be buried as a criminal. And there would be no markings of him. There would be nothing to carry on that. There would be no place of, of martyrdom. There would be no place that people could go to and say, here's Jesus. They want to totally get rid of that. Uh, a couple of years ago, I had the chance to go to Haiti. And when I was there, because the earthquake had killed so many so quickly, and they had to get rid of the bodies very quickly, they buried many of them, tens of thousands, some rumored even more, all in the same mass grave site. And there's a big marker that indicates they were there, but there's no individual indicators of who is there because they just couldn't do it fast enough. That wasn't because of a criminal thing, but the same sort of thing. that You go there and you can appreciate that this is a place where a lot of people are buried, but you can't go and find that person that you're looking for, anything. And that's what they want to have here. They don't want Jesus to be able to be a place that they can go to him. And we know that that kind of changed around a little bit with Joseph Arimathea, Arimathea, excuse me. So only that... Only the righteous really had a name to continue on beyond their death. And the the Pharisees and the Sadducees simply wouldn't let this be for this man named Jesus. They simply couldn't afford it. They had to nip it in the bud and this religious following. So they had to take away 
his name. They had to take away all the product of it. And they needed to take away his present and his future. Any possibilities that others would carry on this name. It was the final insult in a life full of insults for Jesus. And as a side note, one of the things that I find interesting is that the rocks in the tomb where Jesus was laid knew who Jesus was. And yet the Pharisees, the religious elites, cannot see it. And that should be very humbling for ourselves as well, because thus uh, go us, unless the Holy Spirit comes within us. The Holy Spirit allows us to be able to know Jesus, and allows us to understand who he is. So you see the Pharisees were, were worried about Jesus' following, and he had to be stopped. And so occasion on occasion, Jesus had basically publicly embarrassed them, called them out, and they, they had seen to his death on trumped-up charges in a kangaroo court, and they certainly weren't allowed to let this, uh, allowing this rebellion to continue. For Jesus was a rebel in their eyes. And that was actually the card that they played to the Romans, by the way, that Jesus was this rebel, this, a rebellion was coming. Jesus was a rebel in their eyes, even though they were the rebels in God's eyes. And that's an interesting irony there, that they're accusing him of being the rebel, and they're accusing him of being the rebel was being rebellious against God in and of itself. So they saw him as a rebel and that a rebel must die without those to follow in his cause or to follow in his name. The Sanhedrin demanded of Peter and John about their, their healing of a crippled, a crippled man in Acts 4. They said, by what power, by what name did you do this? Because they were greatly disturbed over their position and their place. And they warned and they commanded them not to speak or teach any more in Jesus' name. Now, as an aside, of course, the disciples did not heed this at all. They did not heed the command of men because they had the command of God to go in his name. And this is a good reminder for us as followers of Jesus Christ that we need to heed God over heeding men. To heed God over heeding our own impulses and our own fears and so forth. One of the things that uh, I've, I've found in missions is an interesting aspect is that how missions looks at the world is very different than how a lot of people look at the world. There's, in missions, it's kind of said there is no such thing as a closed country. There's a lot of closed countries. You can't go there. You can't get there. You can't have, they have limited access and so forth. In missions, they say there is no such thing as a closed country. Now, you have to stay and abide as much as you can, but the, the, word, the law of God supersedes any of the, the local laws that we are commanded to, to speak out in his name. And they find very creative ways to be able to do it. It's a lot of fun, but I think that aspect is, is an interesting one, that we are to heed God, not men. So what the Pharisees and Sadducees didn't realize in their trying to take away from his name is what they couldn't take. They couldn't take away Jesus' name. Why is that? Because it wasn't theirs to take. It was outside of their jurisdiction or their purview, so to speak. They had no authority over taking Jesus' name. And I'll explain that in just a second. But moreover, the enemies, those Sanhedrin, thought that by stopping Jesus' name that they could stop the religious winds of change, the upheaval taking place. They were probably thinking very much like in Psalm 69, verse 28. It says, May they be blotted out of the book of life and not be listed with the righteous. That's what they wanted to do with Jesus. So too, they had, had hoped to obliterate Jesus' name from the book of history as unrighteous. Yet their obtuse hearts did not see that it was not their book to even be writing in. 
and that he was the righteous one of Israel. He was the owner of the book, as Revelation 3.5 tells us. And they were the unrighteous ones. As a, a way to think of that is they could no more blot him out of the book of the righteous than Tom Sawyer could blot out Mark Twain. Mark Twain was the author of Tom Sawyer. Jesus is the author of faith. He is the owner of the book of life. They could not blot him out of that. They arranged for him a nameless grave, and yet he would not lay in it. They arranged for his death, and yet he did not stay in it. Instead, God arranges in his providence that Jesus be put in the tomb of Joseph Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man. And they placed a massive stone across the, the mouth of the tomb. We've all heard this. We know this. We've read about that there was this huge stone there. Something that the Sanhedrin actually probably was hoping was large enough to keep all those pesky disciples away. Which it was, by the way. Yet it was not large enough to keep our Lord within. For the Pharisees failed to recognize that you can't give a nameless grave to the name. You can't give a nameless grave to the name. For the author and namer himself alone gives his own name. He is self-defining, self-determined with something they call aseity, an absolute independence from human designation. Put simply, we don't define him. He defines us. And as believers, this is good news indeed. For we have blessings in the priceless name of Jesus. John 1.12 tells us we have salvation through his name. Matt 18.20 says as believers we gather in his name. John 14, we can pray in his name. We can call on his name. We are forgiven in his name. And it is at the name of Jesus that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that is great comfort indeed that our Lord is not mere contrivance of men, nor defined by finite and unrighteous people, but instead is above all, over all, king above all kings, name above all names. In the Bible, his holy word gives us his name, and yet we do not just have one name, we have many names. I'm going to read through a few of them that I've kind of put down here. The name of Jesus Alpha and Omega, beginning and end, first and the last. His name is a good shepherd, the way, the truth, the life, the resurrection and the life, the gate, the vine, the bread of life, the light of the world. He is the king of ages, the king of the Jews, the king of saints and the king of kings. A wonderful counselor, almighty God, everlasting father, the root of David, the seed of woman, the word of of God. He's the author of salvation, the author and finisher of our faith, the prince of life, the prince of peace, the head of the church, the chief cornerstone, our rock, our redeemer. He's the first begotten and the ancient of days, the lion of the tribe of Judah and the lamb of God, the judge of Israel, the holy one, the arm of the Lord, the beloved son, the advocate, mediator, dayspring, messiah, and deliverer, the man of sorrows, the image of God, the savior, the word, the morning star, the great I am, the amen, God with us. 
He fits all those names. That's the amazing part. It's the Alpha, the Omega, the Lion, the Lamb. He, all these, in some sense, opposites in our mind, these paradoxes, and yet he is all of these things because he is all things to us. He fits all these names, and whatever name we have, whatever aspect we are looking at of his name, he has the name above all names. So they couldn't take his name away by assigning Jesus a nameless grave. No nameless grave can unname Jesus. No grave could contain our risen Lord. In Colossians 3.17, I'll read that briefly. Colossians 3.17. I always forget to bring my glasses when I come here. I only wear them about four times a year. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to, the God, to God the Father through him. So the name is an important part of us, an important part of our Christian life. So what does this mean for us? What does his name mean for us here today? Well, a few things. So we've kind of said, Jesus is not just a name that we simply invoke. It's not so, you know what I mean by invoke, that not just a name that we say. We just don't throw the name Jesus out there. That's actually what the, the commandment to not use his name in vain is trying to get at. It's not saying don't swear so much as it's trying to say, don't use the name of the Lord carelessly. We use the name of the Lord carefully. Now, we don't have to be so reverent that we were like some of the Old Testament where they wouldn't even say the name, but we have to use his name properly and think of him. Now, if we are living Christian lives and we are thinking him and living our lives by him, that's very easy to do. And so we want to head towards that. But it's not just a name that we invoke. Yet, it's, it's not as much about invocation as it is about provocation. His name should provoke us to be better. His name should pro, uh, provoke us to be bolder. We are to witness to his name. We are to do all things in his name. One of the things that I was thinking about is we need to better learn his names and to meditate on them and their depth. We could take any one of those aspects and preach an entire sermon on just that one aspect of all those names that I read through. And I know there's a lot of names. But the Bible uses them and I think it's important. But the, all those names indicate something about the depth of Jesus and his character. And we could spend time learning more about that and learning more what that means for us. We are to walk in his name, to talk in his name, to believe, to testify, to heal in his name. We are to love in his name, to give in his name, to pray in his name. Basically, everything it is, is knowing these names, we are supposed to do all things in his name. Why? Because it's a good religious way to do things that we always make sure that we invoke his name? No, because we are doing things for the love of Jesus. That when we love somewhere else, someone else, we're not just loving them because we were commanded to do so, but we are commanded to love them because they are like Jesus. We are loving them, and that is loving our Father. It makes a big difference. You know, we had a program, I know, that what, one of the big things is it said we want to hand out food to the poor. And one of the things that, this is in Detroit at one of our sister churches, and they said, okay, well, we've decided you can still do that and so forth, but you can't talk about Jesus first. And they said, 
We've got to find another program then. We've got to find somebody else who give us some food because we're going to talk about Jesus here. That's connected to why we're doing this. It's not that we're going to make them have to hear it to be able to do this, but that's, that's part of our giving. That's part of who we are. You can't tell us to not talk about who we are. So this becomes something that is part of us, something that we see his name, or we, we understand his name and know his name, and we live out in his name, we love in his name. We do everything in his name. See, knowing his names helps our boldness because we know that we can do all things through Jesus Christ who strengthens us. We can do everything. So we have to remember, it's not just good enough to be unlike the Pharisees too. We have to make sure that we don't look at the Pharisees and say, well, they were really bad people. So as long as we're not bad people and, and to despise the name, then, then we're good. We are good by living in his name and to walk in his ways. We have to be better and we have to believe better. So just to kind of wrap this up, the Pharisees and Sadducees, Jesus' enemies, wanted to place Jesus with the wicked and put him in a nameless grave so they could erase everything from all existence from him. And yet, they found that they could not do this. In fact, Jesus' name is more heard nowadays than ever and has continued to go on because Jesus is alive and he is here with us today. The Lord gave Jesus, it was given the name above all names because of who he was, because of what he did. Let's pray in the name of Jesus. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are the name above all names. I thank you that all these things that we've talked about describe you. Forgive us, Lord, for doubting. Forgive us for not living up to what you wanted us to be. Help us to go out of here today changed. To go and say, the name of Jesus is not just a name. It is a sweetness, a wonderful thing to my heart, a joy to who I am. And I can live in the name of Jesus. I can love my kids in the name of Jesus. I can live with my family members in the name of Jesus. I can reach out to the world in the name of Jesus. Because you are the centerpiece of our life. We ask that you would help us to be bold, help us to be strengthened in love. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. fish, Jonah ends his prayer to God with the declaration that salvation is of the Lord. Salvation from start to finish and every aspect in between is the work of God. It is he alone who quickens each of our souls which were previously dead in trespasses and sins. It is he also who maintains us in the path of righteousness. We do nothing whatsoever to our own preservation except what God himself first does in us. Whatever we have all of our goodness is of the Lord alone. Do we live before the world a consecrated life? It is not us, but Christ living in us. Are we sanctified? We did not cleanse ourselves. The Holy Spirit sanctifies us. Are we weaned from worldly pleasures? We are only, by God's chastisements, sanctified to our good. Do we feed on the word? 
That word would be no food for us unless the Lord made it food for our souls and helped us to feed upon it. Do we find aid in our journey of faith? It is the help of the Lord who made heaven and earth. What Jonah learned in the great deep, we are reminded of here at this table. Salvation is of the Lord. Jesus Christ has been given to us, and we are utterly dependent on him. He is the author and finisher of our faith. He is the Alpha and Omega. He is our beginning and our end. He is our all in all. So come to his table, partake, and remember that he who has begun this good work of salvation in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of his return. Christ's body, broken for us. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.